Filter. This is evidence of the... We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is all in the beginning. Good morning, everyone. You're tuned in to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design. I'm your host, Jason Taylor, joined in WXIR studios by my good friend and co-host, Mary Lawrence. Good morning. It is Saturday. Oh, what's the day today? Saturday, July 24th, 2021. So we are live in WXIR's studios this morning. It is a pleasure to be here. Big thanks to WXAR for providing this platform for Grassroots Community Radio. Our show, Evidence of Design, is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. We think there is way too much economic inequality in society, and we think there's something we can do about it. The the 50% of All of the nation's income goes to the top 20% of income earners. Meanwhile, the bottom 20% of people in the United States only take in around 3% of all of the income. Wealth disparities are even more disparate, where the top 10% of wealthiest Americans control 70% of the nation's wealth, whereas the bottom 50% of Americans, the bottom half of America, essentially has overall no net worth on the national picture. Therefore, there is a lot of economic inequality in society. We don't think it's just morally unfair, but we think it has profound negative implications for our social fabric and cohesion and also in our political sphere, where those in power tend to perpetuate their power through shared interests with money and increasing inequality. That's what we do on the show, investigate the causes and critique the effects of income and wealth inequality. And we thank you for joining us. We have a very special show today. We will be talking about the right to repair movement. That might be a new term for folks, or if you've been following the news for the past few weeks, if not months, you might have seen right to repair, right to fix, in the news. There's a lot going on legislatively now to provide legislation that makes it easier and more affordable for, for folks to fix their own stuff. And there have been people who have been advocating for right to repair legislation for a long time. And we're going to be talking on today's show with one of the leaders in the right to repair movement. Super excited here, Rochester, to talk about what right to repair is with you and share with you how you can get involved. 
You're welcome to share your thoughts with us throughout the hour today. You can give us a call, 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. You can also email us at radioeod at gmail.com, radioeod at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Radio EOD. We're going to jump right into the Right to Repair movement after a short break. Hang on. That's Craftwork with The Model, and this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. So folks, this past week, the Biden administration issued an executive order to promote competition in the economy. Included in the executive order was a push for the Federal Trade Commission to, quote, lessen unfair anti-competitive restrictions on third-party repair or self-repair of such items as uh, and such as the restrictions imposed by powerful manufacturers that prevent farmers from repairing their own equipment. So there was an executive order from the Biden administration this past week to promote repair of items. Also, the New York State Senate last month became the first state government or first part of a state government in the nation to pass a right to repair bill. The New York State Assembly did not get around to passing their end of that agreement before the end of the past legislative session, but it's anticipated that they will get back to that in the next legislative session in New York to become the first state to pass a right to repair legislation, to my knowledge. And our very own Congressman Joe Morelli introduced the Fair Repair Act last month in Congress to help make technology repairs more accessible and affordable to consumers. What's going on here? Well, there have been a lot of people advocating for years as part of a right to repair movement, with the goal being to make it easier and more affordable to repair broken equipment. Instead of being forced to go through pricey repairs by the original equipment manufacturer or even just throwing the product out and buying a new one, right to repair legislation would make repairs easier and more affordable and perhaps have profound positive implications for the environment. And we're lucky to be joined today on the phones by one of the leaders in the right to repair movement. Kevin O'Reilly should be on the phone with us, and Kevin is a Boston-based engineer-turned-advocate and the director of US, uh, the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. Through research and advocacy, he works to eliminate manufacturer-imposed restrictions on repairing medical and agricultural equipment. His work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, and the New York Daily News, and more. And on the phone with us right now should be Kevin O'Reilly. Kevin, welcome to Evidence of Design. Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me? Yes, you're coming through clear. Thank you so much for taking the time, Kevin. We're really excited to talk today about the Right to Repair movement and hear from you what it's all about. We have plenty of time to chat, but I just want to jump into things and ask you, in your own words, what is Right to Repair? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking about right to repair um, over the next next hour with you. But, um, the right to repair is the idea that we should be able to fix our stuff when it breaks, whether it's your smartphone, your laptop, it's a you know a, a, a tractor, or even um, a medical device like a ventilator. We should be equipping consumers and independent repair technicians with the parts, tools, and information they need to fix their stuff when it breaks. Um, so it's, it's really kind of a, a basic and, and common sense idea, but you know, what we're seeing is that manufacturers of all these range of devices often uh, 
construct barriers to repair, whether that's refusing to pro provide access to, to parts, to tools, to the software tools that we need, and as you know, everything that we um, more and more the the devices that we use require um, software, um, and that's just doesn't make sense. We need to fix our stuff when it breaks to prevent it from ending up in the landfill, and also to you know save money and, and save um, and, and make sure that we have you know the the devices that we use every day. So the goals of the right to repair movement, are they kind of uh, legislation, like in order to achieve what you're describing here to allow us to be able to repair our equipment and, you know, have more access to repairing and have the repairs be more affordable uh, to achieve that? Or are we looking for legislative uh, ends? Yeah, that's that's been a big drive of the campaign thus far is, you know, we're, we see a lot of action and support in the states in particular. So you mentioned the the bill in New York that passed through um, the state Senate this this year. Um, that was one of 27 states that introduced some sort of right to repair legislation. So this is an idea that's that's broadly popular. It's popular across ideological line, um, lines, and that support has led to a, a lot of states getting interested, introducing legislation, and trying to make this happen. But as you also mentioned, there's also efforts at the, the federal level to um, do something about this. So there's, you know, uh, Representative Joe Morelli's Fair Repair Act. There's the Biden administration's, um, or President Joe Biden's um, uh, executive order. And then also the FTC is taking a lot of action to try and do this. Actually, just earlier this week, we saw them unanimously approve a policy statement that would um, that indicated that they are going to start to crack down on the uh, illegal repair restrictions that are harming consumers and and harming you know farmers, smartphone um, owners, all of these in in all of these categories. So legislation is a big thing that we've been pushing for, but ultimately our goal is to make sure that people have the tools they need and get those in their hands, and and we're going to keep driving until they do have those tools in their hands. Hmm. Can you give us a few examples of specifically how companies might make it difficult to repair the equipment that they sell to people? Absolutely. So I think, you know, there's multiple industries that this issue affects, and I think it's, it's kind of useful to break this up. So starting with consumer technology, like smartphones, like laptops, like tablets, right? Um, there's, first of all, design decisions that are made. So you, I, I don't know if you remember your first phone or cell phone. I had a, a flip phone, um, which I might be uh, you know, dating myself there, but um, it used to be that you could just pop out a battery and then replace it when it when it ran out of juice, right? You didn't necessarily need to charge it all the time. It was easily replaceable, but now with modern smartphones, you know, in order to achieve slimmer and sleeker designs, often what we're seeing is that manufacturers will glue a battery into their device and that's harmful for a couple of reasons, right? So for one, lithium-ion batteries are going to lose charge after a certain amount of time, whether it's, you know, 18 to, in a, some sort of range around 18 to 36 months. Those batteries are not going to be able to contain the same level of, of charge as, as they were when they were brand new. So that's a common failure point, and that's something that um, if you just are able to replace your, your phone's battery, that's great, and that's an easy way to give your phone extended life. 
um, versus, you know, a lot of people will get to the point that the battery isn't working as well anymore and they'll just replace their phone. Um, what we see in modern smartphones often is that these batteries are being glued in. So instead of being able to pop it out like I could with my old smartphone, I've got to take the phone apart. I've got to remove the adhesive very carefully and then put a new battery in and, and uh, get that new battery with that new juice. Um, it's, batteries were simply made so that they had some sort of fastener that could easily be replaced. That's one quick and easy step to extend the lifespan of our um, technology. But in addition to, to physical design cho choices like that, um, you know, we see proprietary screws that a normal, you know, your normal toolbox might not uh, have a, a, or a, a screwdriver for. It's also the case that as more and more of our technology becomes digital, there is software that makes it run, and manufacturers use that to lock out independent repair. So if you don't have access to the right software tools or even the right um, you know, digital codes needed to diagnose a problem. You can't go in, you can't figure out what's wrong with your device, you can't make the fix, and also you can't authorize the repair once it's made, which is, is a really important part of the process. Now, one thing I do want to step back and say is I, I actually did have replaced the battery on my phone, but I don't go in and open up my laptop all the time. The important thing here is that you also should have the option to go to an independent technician who can provide these services at a cheaper rate than the manufacturer themselves. So, you know, with cars, is it's a great example. Um, we actually do have the right to repair uh, automobiles because in 2012 there was a uh, Massachusetts um, ballot measure that um, passed with 76% of the vote that said that folks can, and independent uh, mechanics can get access to these tools, to these parts, and to the, the software information. And um, ultimately, that became the law of the land because all the manufacturers came to the table and said, you know, they didn't want to deal with different um, regulations popping up in different states, so they just agreed that they could provide that. That's the reason you can still take your car into an independent mechanic and get your oil changed or check, uh, take care of the check engine light and all those things. So part of, a big part of this push is that we want to make sure that those parts and tools and information are all made available to independent technicians, independent mechanics who have a better idea of how all this stuff works. So you at least have choice so that there's competition in the market. It can drive prices down. And then also just keeping our stuff around for longer. If we're constantly replacing digital technology just simply because the battery is wearing out. That's not a good situation for the planet. We can't just throw away these cell phones every 18 to 36 months because it's not keeping a charge anymore. Wow, yeah, Kevin, as you're describing how uh, it's difficult for us to repair some of our personal devices like cell phones, I'm reminded, you know, my dad uses his cell phone all the time, you know, uh, always mm -hmm. sending emails, uh, doing things on it. So he's charging his phone frequently. And I, I'm, I'm realizing that, 
for the past couple of years, his cell phone has been breaking about every year because he just charges it and uses it all day. And it's always the same problem with each cell phone he gets where like the charging port doesn't work anymore, where it just sort of maybe the, the, the pins on the charging port doesn't work or maybe his battery's running out. I'm not sure. But yeah, every single year he, he you know buys a new uh, $1,000 phone or has to get rid of his phone and I, we've just been unable to get it repaired because whenever we sort of ask the company that he gets it from, it's just like, no, I mean, it's just, uh, batteries wear out. And, um, <laughs> if you want to get it repaired, it's oft- often several hundred dollars, which at this point could just go towards a new phone. Yeah. Yeah. We see that often, right? We see pricing structures such that it's just a little bit more expensive to get a new device than to fix your device. And, when faced with that decision, it's kind of like, well, I'll take the new phone with the better camera and the, you know, faster speeds and all those kind of things. Um, but but that is a problem because, you know, we in America throw away 416,000 cell phones every single day. Um, that's a lot of phones. And, and as a part of that, right, we are, this ha- the cell phone habit that we have, um, takes some 23.7 million tons of raw material to satisfy. Or that's basically con- like consuming six Empire State buildings um, a- worth of material every six days. Um, so that's a lot of raw material. That's a lot of the rare earth metals that make our phones run. And if you had a simple and, and cheaper option to just go and get that battery, your dad's battery replaced, you could really have a big impact on the electronic waste kind of crisis that we're running into. So, for example, if, if we in America, on average, just held on to our um, phones for a year longer, right now we hold on to them for about you know two, two and a half years. So if we just made that to three and three or three and a half years, that would have the emissions cutting re- equivalent of taking 636,000 cars off the road for a year. So clearly there's really an environmental imperative to, to do something about this and make it so that you have more options. Your option isn't only to go back to the manufacturer and um, be sold a new device. Well, we're talking with Kevin O'Reilly. He's the director of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. And you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Kevin, we've been talking about consumer electronic devices, but right to repair uh, legislation could benefit different industries and also folks in different industries also face difficulties repairing their professional equipment that they need for their jobs, right? Uh, What other industries or examples are there where uh, right to repair legislation could help make things run more smoothly and more affordably? So right to repair could help um, a number of different industries as you're talking to. And a couple of that are particularly significant is that um, right to repair would, could be really helpful both for farmers who use, you know, heavy equipment like tractors and uh, combine harvesters, as well as in hospitals. Um, there are hospital repair technicians who are trying to fix critical medical equipment like ventilators and dialysis machines that have been so important, especially in the COVID-19 um, pandemic response that are having trouble getting access to the tools they need. Um, so we talk about, you know, in, on the farm and agriculture for a minute, what happens often, right, is that 
much like our cell phones, there are software that there's software that is um, loaded into modern agricultural devices. Um, if you hop into the cab of a, a modern tractor, you'll see, you know, a, probably a couple screens with all sorts of, you know, it's basically like you've got multiple iPads inside of that um, machine, and it's not your grandfather's tractor that's, you know, just kind of mechanics, and you're going in and you um, have the, you take a wrench and you can fix your device. The way it is for modern uh, tractors is that you, again, need these software tools in order to diagnose a problem um, and then authorize the repair once it's made. The problem is, is that the manufacturer only doesn't sell those kind of tools to farmers. So you've got this group of people who are famous for being self-sufficient, for finding a way to get the job done regardless of what kind of problems come up. And they're being told by the manufacturer, actually, no, you can't fix this. Only our branded technicians can do that. What that means for farmers is, you know, during important times of, of the year, whether it's harvest or planting or whatever it is, time and weather are so important to their ability to um, carry out their operations, to make a livelihood, to put to grow the food that ends up on our tables. And if your tractor breaks, breaks down in the middle of harvest with a storm rolling in, your whole crop can be at risk. Um, that's a really bad situation to be in, and that's not a situation that farmers like to be in, especially when the nearest dealer could be, you know, 50, 100 miles away. So what often happens is that farmers face long delays to get their equipment fixed, um, sometimes days, sometimes weeks, sometimes as long as a month. And that's simply not an option. That is time, precious time, and also, you know, crop that is going to be um, – going to be wasted and, and it, it ends up being, you know, basically just a, a waste and it, it's, it's not ending up um, a, as a product that they can sell and then can end up on a food table. So we see it as a, a huge problem within agriculture, but in addition to that, we also um, see the prob problem in the healthcare field. And that was something that was really shocking about, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic was this was a moment when a lot of people are getting sick and we should have been doing everything we possibly could to work together to make sure that patients were getting the best care possible. But what we saw is many manufacturers of important um, equipment like ventilators continue to restrict access to needed materials in order to fix these devices when they broke. So to give you an example, I heard of uh, one story of a group of, they're called biomedical repair technicians. So these are the folks who work in hospitals who are fixing equipment as soon as it breaks so that it can be put back into use and in, in treating a patient. And um, one, one group of biomedical repair technicians that I spoke to talked about how kind of at the outset of the pandemic, they got a set of ventilators from the strategic stockpile, about 100 ventilators. And they wanted to do uh, routine maintenance and testing to make sure that these devices, which you know were, had been sitting on the shelf for an emergency situation like the one we were facing, to make sure those devices were safe and ready to use. In order to do that, they needed a special kit from the manufacturer. And this was a, an independent group of biomedical repair technicians, right? So they were a third party. They didn't work directly for the hospital. They didn't work directly for the 
manufacturer, but they were qualified, they had the training, they had the certifications, they've been doing this work for, for many, many years. They've got this, this big influx of 100 ventilators, and they called the, the manufacturer to try and get access to these kits, but the manufacturer refused to sell them the kits simply because they weren't the hospital. So instead of going into use as these ventilators were intended, right, as a, as a part of the strategic stockpile, they were sitting un, basically unrepaired and unrepairable because the manufacturer refused to deal with this group. So it took about three and a half months before those 100 ventilators to be brought up to speed and then put out and to the field and put out to hospitals and, and put into use. And it's, it's, it's really kind of a, a, a tragic situation because, like I said, at, at kind of the top of this is we should have been doing everything we could to deliver the best care possible, but instead manufacturer profits and, and interests got in the way of, of doing that. Wow, that's a powerful example. I think one of the counter arguments company well let me just say uh, companies have been lobbying against the passage of right to repair legislation um, google microsoft apple spending lots of money to try to get right to repair legislation not passed and one of the arguments that companies are using is look we have equipment out there that needs to run effectively and safely and we know how to fix our own equipment to prevent physical dangers that could happen from misrepair and also cybersecurity dangers that could happen from misrepair what merit do you think there is to those arguments kevin of companies saying you know we all want equipment that works and in order to have equipment that works and also works well and safely uh, it has to be done by us the, the original equipment manufacturer well, frankly, Jason, I think there's little merit to that argument, and that's something that we hear often. It's this idea of the benevolent monopoly. The only way that we can effectively service your devices, whether it's a tractor or a ventilator or a smartphone, is to trust us, the big you know, corporation that, that manufactures it. And we've argued and, and kind of picked this apart in many ways, but what's most powerful is earlier uh, this year in May, the FTC released a report called Nixing the Fix, in which they took a look at all of these claims of the claims that uh, manufacturers often make, like cybersecurity, like safety. They called for evidence from both sides of the argument. They looked into the research to see what the facts were. And what the FTC said was that there is scant evidence to justify manufacturers' claims on uh, repair restrictions. So the fact of the matter is, when it comes to safety, independent technicians are doing a great job and a safe job of, of repairing devices. When it comes to cybersecurity, repair doesn't affect um, cybersecurity. They're not creating new vulnerabilities by being able to replace your battery, right? So these are largely talking points that um, we see often from manufacturers, but the facts just don't line up. Well, let me reintroduce you here. We're talking with Kevin O'Reilly. He's a Boston-based engineer-turned-advocate and director of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. 
Through research and advocacy, Kevin works to eliminate manufacturer-imposed restrictions on repairing medical and agricultural equipment. And you're tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can share your thoughts with us and Kevin at 585-219-8889 or at radioeod at gmail.com or on our social media handles, Radio EOD. Kevin, I'm thinking back to, well, I'm, I'm thinking of myself here. I don't have very many handy skills. I, I think that the most I know how to do is what I learned in, in a seventh grade uh, home economics class, as it's called in New York State, where we learned how to use a sewing machine. And I'm afraid I don't I don't remember anything of that. I'm marveled by Mary's skills, my other co-host here, who can, you know, if there's a problem with, with the clothing or, or a little device, you know, household thing, you can make it work, Mary. You can fix it. And I'm, 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 I marvel at that. So I guess what I'm getting at here is to what extent uh, is repairing something, you know, a desire to repair, an ability to repair uh, a cultural issue in the United States? Like, even if we were able to repair something, would people do it? You know, does this legislation matter in terms of a, a cultural sense? Like, would I bother? Versus... Um, you know, are repairing things these days just different because so much is technology based? As you mentioned, we're not just talking about taking a wrench to a tractor, but there's a lot of sort of software involved. So the, the big question here, Kevin, but two lines. One, um, if we're if we have a greater ability to repair something, do you think people would bother to do it? And two, um, is it even reasonable to think that people can repair a lot of the tools, equipment, consumer devices they have today because they're so technology based? No, that's that's a great question and important point. And I think you know to first of all talk about kind of the the culture of repair that we hope to see. Right now, that doesn't exist. Right, we treat a lot of the devices that we use on a daily basis as disposable. And I think you know one great example of this is is uh, Apple AirPods. Right, these are essentially. Um, Headphones that are destined to end up in the trash because, <laughs> like I was talking about earlier, these the batteries on those will only last 18 to 36 months, and you can't go in and replace that battery. Um, there is new a new company called Podswap that's that's trying to make that more uh, possible. By you can send them in and they'll send you a a new set and um, that has a replaced battery, but. That culture of throwaway and disposable electronics very much exists. And part of what we're hoping to achieve with Right to Repair is by providing people with what they need to fix their stuff to enable the growth of a culture where we do look at repair before we think about getting a new device. And again, to talk about cars, right? If your windshield cracks or if the battery dies in your car, you're not, your first reaction isn't to throw that uh, car away and get a new one your first reaction is to go and maybe you won't do it yourself but go to an independent mechanic and get that problem fixed and, and keep that car moving um, so that's kind of the aspect as far as creating a culture of repair and, and trying to kind of shift the way that we think about our digital devices in, in uh, modern times um, and as far as you know Personal skills, right? I, like I said before, after I started working on this campaign, my my phone, my iPhone's battery started to 
die out and it was in need of a replacement. And I went on to um, ifixit.com, which is ifixit is the they kind of talk about themselves as the online guide for everything. If you need to repair something, you can go to ifixit.com and they'll have essentially a, a wiki with um, information on how you can make the fix that you need to do. And they're they're a leader in the right to repair movement as well. Um, but I was able to go to ifixit buy a new battery, follow their online guide, open up my phone, and change the battery. And it was kind of a terrifying experience. You know, <laughs> taking the screen off your battery and looking at the what, what's happening on the inside is a little dissettling. You're like, oh, boy, is this going to work when I'm all done? Um, fortunately, as you can tell, I'm talking to you on the phone now. It, it <laughs> didn't work out. But um, the, you know, the, the expectation is not necessarily that everybody in America who owns a smartphone is now going to, have the skills or have the desire to go and fix their laptop, fix their phone um, when it breaks. It's just that you should have the option to do that and also that there should be an independent technician that you can turn to in those times because, again, we when you have that kind of option, when you have that kind of choice, it's going to mean that you can get better customer service. It's going to mean that the price is going to be competitive so that you know, not only, even if you do decide to go back to the manufacturer at the, um, when your phone has a problem, if there's an independent technician who's charging $50 for a phone replacement or for a battery replacement when um, the manufacturer might char charge $150 to $200, that's going to bring the price down on the manufacturer's end as well. So, right to repair is about giving you the option to repair your own stuff, but also giving you the option to turn to an independent technician much like you would with your car and, and go to the mechanic on a corner. Hmm. So if right to repair laws were passed, then conceivably when we buy a product from a manufacturer, it might come with a manual or a schematic or a, even spare parts or at least places, you know, a reference to where we could get um, help fixing that device if we weren't to do it ourselves. And of course we might, choose to go fix the device through the original manufacturer or go through third parties. You've brought up the car example, which I think is really helpful where, you know, we need to get our car fixed. You can go to the dealer. Um, you're probably not going to just throw your car out and buy a new one. You, or most folks probably go to a, a third party uh, place that, you know, specializes in fixing cars of all kinds. So if right to repair legislation is passed, would there be conceivably more jobs created for say third party repair businesses? I think that's a definite possibility, right? That there is a need to fix stuff for we, you know, whether it's phones or tractors or whatever it is, there are, there are a lot of people who are dealing with delays, who are dealing with equipment that isn't functioning the way that they need it to. And by enabling, you know, entrepreneurs to get access to what they need and to gain the skills they need in order to fix our stuff, there's a definite opportunity for, um, for small businesses to pop out of that, right? We work with a ton of uh, repair shops who are, who did just that, right? They were interested in the way their technology worked. They figured out how, their phones ran and, and what the different components were. And then they started a business and um, provide, you know, effective and safe and um, reasonably priced repairs for folks. Um, so I think there's a, there's a definite opportunity there for uh, the expansion and, and uh, new small businesses to pop up as a result of this. 
And, you know, one of the important aspects of this is by enabling that kind of repair and enabling small businesses to do this, we also increase our resilience. So at the outset of the pandemic, right, when everything we were dealing with um, lockdowns and people were staying home in order to stay safe and to, um, you know, protect their, protect their family, protect their community, we turned to our devices to do everything, whether it was kids zooming into school or adults zooming into work. We needed our digital technology to function, you know, nine to five, if not longer, every single day. Um, but, uh, you know, for, for similar reasons, we saw um, Apple and Microsoft and all sorts of business shutting down their stores because they wanted to stay safe. But if your laptop was in, uh, in the, the Apple store, um, some of those stores were closed down for four months and you were just out of luck. You had no choice but to, uh, to wait for them. Meanwhile, there were independent fixers who were finding ways to refurbish um, Chromebooks and all sorts of different uh, laptops in order to provide children who needed this to, to get it to zoom into school um, with the technology they needed to do it. And they, there was a huge need for it. And when we could have been repairing and refurbishing and putting the, giving these uh, old laptops new life, a lot of them were just ended up in the scrap heap because of the repair restrictions that um, manufacturers construct. And that's, it, it's really a, a shame. And, um, you know, thank goodness for the independent fixers who are finding ways to get it done, but we should be doing everything we can to, to make their job easier. Hmm. Remind us of the economic implicate or the environmental implications of fixing more of our stuff and, and not just throwing out, you know, we've, we've seen just in the past month, golly, the headlines of, 120 degree heat in Canada and Siberia and flooding in Germany and the, the, uh, the, the, the forest fires in Oregon that have spread across the U.S. I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of uh, really scary, scary environmental news. And of course, I, I don't think we really have our act together as strong as we could when it comes to being proactive about being uh, good stewards of this planet, of course, for um, our generation and, and those who come on. So um, remind us, uh, to what extent are, like, how much stuff are we throwing out? <laughs> and um, how might Right to Repair contribute to a, a cleaner, safer environment for years to come? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in, in America, we toss 416,000 cell phones every single day. Um, and that's a huge problem. And the waste aspect of the repair restrictions that exist today is kind of the most obvious um, part and, and the most clear environmental harm that we're doing by uh, treating electronics like the disposable rather than doing everything we can to fix them when they break. Um, but it, it's not just that aspect, right? To think about the kind of whole life cycle of the device, we are extracting rare earth metals that are required for modern technology, things like cobalt and more, um, where we're digging just craters into the earth to extract a finite resource that's going to run out at some point. We are manufacturing these devices, and there are, you know, outside of, of smartphone factories and in places like China, there are these just the lakes that are basically just acid. It's, it's, it's really terrifying to think about these 
just hellacious flakes that we're creating from the um, the the output and the the kind of waste that is developed as a part of the um, cell phone manufacturing process and um, other technology manufacturing process. Um, and then finally, there's the transportation and the use and, and the disposal. Um, but you know, like I mentioned earlier, if we were able to extend the lifespan of our cell phones by simply one year, we'd be able to um, have the impact of taking 636,000 cars off the road for a year. Um, globally, we produce uh, 275 million laptops each year, and in that process, we're producing the equivalent of 150.6 billion pounds of carbon dioxide, which is about the same as 15 million cars being on the road for a year. So the life cycle, the production, the transportation, the mining, and the disposal of all of these electronics is doing some serious harm. And that's something that we want to change. We, we do hear from a lot of manufacturers about how they're committing to, um, you know, be net zero on carbon uh, emissions and all the environmental aspects of um, how they're trying to be good stewards of the environment and the communities that they operate in. And they need to take up repair and, and the right to repair as a part of that because if you are anti-repair, you are anti-environment and something there needs to change. Hmm. Yeah, last I checked, cell phones aren't compostable. Um, <laughs> so you can't just, <laughs> can't just throw it out. And even if you want to bring it to your local recycling center, it's, it's not always that simple. Yeah, actually, I wanted to no, jump I, in. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just wondering if you have a sense of what does happen to the materials once something is thrown out, if you could explain that a little bit. Yeah, so, you know, there are electronics recyclers who are doing their best to take the materials that um, we're disposing of and then harvest what can be reused in order to um, you know, put that back into new cell phones or um, electric vehicle batteries or, you know, wind turbines or whatever it might, might be. But um, only about a third of the electronic waste uh, that is produced in the United States is actually recycled. And that happens for a couple of reasons, right? On, on one uh, hand, there are other repair restrictions that we're talking about where um, folks can't get in and can't um, get access to what they need to refurbish this thing instead of recycle it. But there's also the newest of our designs too, right? If batteries are glued in and it's an incredibly labor-intensive process, um, that makes it more difficult to, to recycle these things or, or to um, harvest the, the useful materials out of it. In a lot of cases also, all of the uh, different, you know, flame retardant chemicals that might be in some of the components of our devices make it such that recycling is impossible. And instead of these things being reused, refurbished, they're just shredded and thrown into the landfill. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there are a lot of businesses and, and people who are trying to make the most of it, but the design decisions as well as uh, the, the software implications and, and the repair restrictions that we see prevent the stuff from being reused and given a second life. 
Just to remind everyone that you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, and we're talking with Kevin O'Reilly. He's the director of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. Kevin, uh, could, could you remind us what is planned obsolescence? And, and I want to I want to um, try to give the benefit of the doubt here to think that. Well, companies want to make a good product, and you hear companies say, "This will last forever, lifetime warranty, or you know, lifetime guarantee." It's, but that's kind of counteracted by the idea that a brand new model of smartphone comes out every year, or laptop, and and also, you know, the term planned obsolescence implies that um, sometimes maybe the things we're buying are built to fail. So just, just remind us, what is planned obsolescence, and, and does that fit into perhaps what's going on with manufacturers making it harder to repair things as well? Absolutely, it does. Um, and, you know, I don't think that uh, companies anymore are... are broadcasting their lifetime guarantee. It's not like you're buying a Maytag, uh, you know, washing machine back in the 60s. Um, it's all about the sizzle. It's all about the sleek new design, the new camera, the better screen, the bigger screen, all of those kind of things. And, you know, planned obsolescence or, you know, what we talk about too is premature obsolescence because in some cases it's not quite so diabolical that your cell phone is going to explode after, you know, two months or two years of use. Um, but there are these design decisions that are made so that you have to go back, you have to buy a new device every couple of years, which you know drives sales, increases revenues, um, and does kind of incentivizes the manufacturers to continue to make our devices more and more disposable to make them last uh, less time. Um, so this idea of, of premature obsolescence is very real. Instead of creating products that you know, we value that have value in the in the aftermarket that um, we want to make long, last as long as possible. They do things like gluing in batteries that are guaranteed to, to fail after a certain amount of time, um, such that it's increasingly different, difficult to get those out. But not all manufacturers do this, right? And I think like, you know, if, if you have ever used a Dell computer for work, there's an example of a company who's making their product such that it's, it's repairable so that you can still pop out a battery and put a new battery in when that starts no longer holds the charge. And those are the kind of shifts that we want to see corporations make is to think about not only performance, not only the, you know, kind of stylistic choices that are made when designing these products, but also how can they be made repairable? How can we get the most life and the, and the most juice out of these um, devices so that we don't have to throw them away after a couple of years and we don't have to contribute to the environmental problems that, that we're, we're already facing and we'll continue to face if something doesn't change. Hmm. Well, where does the right to repair movement stand? Uh, are there promising signs of legislation being passed? And uh, if someone wants to get involved, how can they do it? Yeah, so I think that the right to repair has, you know, made a ton of momentum over the past few years. We saw, like I said, 27 states introduce legislation. Um, it's a broadly popular idea. It's something that whether you're Republican, Independent, or Democrat, we see folks um, supporting pretty pretty strongly. 
Um, and then with President Biden weighing in with his executive order um, being the, you know, one might say the most powerful right to repair advocate we have out there, with the FTC taking action to address these harmful repair restrictions, the momentum for the right to repair movement is growing and continues to grow. And we're going to keep channeling that momentum until we see change. So, you know, we're continuing to push for legislation. We're continuing to advocate for the FTC to take these kind of actions. And we're going to continue to do that until the problem is solved, until people have the ability to fix their own stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but the way that people can get involved, and this is, a, a, you know, really important because that's the way that we win here is we show that this is something that the public overwhelmingly supports and tell our uh, elected officials to take action on it. The way people can go, go get involved is, first of all, you can go to usperg.org um, and, and go to our Right to Repair campaign page to learn a little bit more to, um, you know, become a part of our, our uh, activist list so that we can tell you about important moments to take action. You can also go to um, yourstate.repair.org. So, you know, newyork.repair.org. And there you can sign a petition, you can send a letter straight to your elected officials, and you can, we can, you can even patch through and give them a call and leave them a message and tell them uh, that you support the right to repair. Um, so these are all good ways to get involved, to do something about it. Um, but also, you know, reach out to me. If you're a repair shop owner, owner if you're a farmer, if you're a biomedical repair technician who faces these kind of problems, I would love to hear your story so that we can talk about it, so that we can tell the public and we can tell decision makers how to do this. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kevin underscore O'Reilly7. Um, so reach out to me. My DMs are open, as they say. Um, but I want to hear about the repair restrictions you're facing so that we can tell that story and take action to remove them. So folks can reach out to their local representative and say they're in favor here in Monroe County. Of course, uh, our member of the House Representatives, Joe Morelli, has introduced the Fair Repair Act. Uh, there, folks can also tweet you, Kevin underscore O'Reilly 7, and folks can go on to the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's webpage specifically about the right to repair. Kevin, what is the U.S. Public Interest Research Group? What, uh, what do you do? Yeah, we're a non-profit public interest advocacy organization. So ultimately what we're about is standing up to powerful interests on behalf of the public. So whether that's issues like right to repair where we're seeing a ton of waste that's causing harm to the environment, harm to people's health, um, or it's other issues around consumer protection, um, you know, privacy, or and as well as public health, um, making sure that we cut down unnecessary use of antibiotics in agriculture, for example. Um, so we're essentially a scrappy group of advocates who is doing everything they can to, um, you know, stand up to powerful interests and, and protect the public. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. Is there anything else that we should uh, touch upon for the right to repair movement? I don't think so. No, Jason, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. And Ultimately, you know, the last thing I'll say is, as I was just saying, is the way that we make this change is by people standing up and, and speaking out. And if you've been listening and you're, something that we talked about resonated with you, reach out to your elected official, reach out to us at USPIRG, and let's find a way to make this change happen. 
Well, thanks so much for your time. Kevin O'Reilly is a Boston-based engineer turned advocate, and he's the director of the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Right to Repair campaign. Through research and advocacy, Kevin works to eliminate manufacturer-imposed restrictions on repairing medical and agricultural equipment. His works have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, the New York Daily News, and more, and he can be found on Twitter at Kevin O'Reilly7. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Just to remind everyone that you're tuned into Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This hour, we were talking about the right to repair movement. Mary, I heard of this movement a week ago, and I am super thrilled about it. It sounds really interesting. I'd love personally to have more skills at repairing things because it's fun to feel a sense of ownership over your own stuff and you feel kind of thrifty and crafty and you develop a new relationship with a, with an item when you're able to um, you know, fix it or repair it without just tossing it out. And also the positive environmental implications of it, you know, not just um, putting arm, all this waste in, in the environments and all these harmful products. There's also, of course, the economics of it and benefiting consumers in that uh, we have these giant corporations who not only have essentially monopolies over the production of their products, but also the repair of them. And so in theory, having more competition in the repair market would drive prices down and allow folks to not be beholden to just the whims of the same uh, corporation that they bought their product from. And there's also the the, the powerful implications for third-party uh, repairers too. That could that could end up creating a lot of jobs and opportunities for folks who can you know locally end up fixing your equipment and devices without having to send them off somewhere. So I, I think this is really interesting stuff, and I'm I'm, I'm thrilled to see this uh, gain some steam. Absolutely, it, that was a fascinating conversation. I'm really thankful to Kevin O'Reilly for coming on, and it sounds like there's not really a downside to this movement really at all <laughs> other than you know maybe the the corporations would say well we're going to make a little less money this way but otherwise it would cut the need for resources it would have us putting less waste into the environment and as you mentioned of course uh on the everyday spending end it would make it more affordable for people to have technology to fix it to give it a longer life um, I know I'm on my second smartphone ever, and I think that's maybe lower than than other people's usage. But you know, I can I can see it's going to be difficult to fix when it comes to the time. I think my dad is on his second this year, Mary. So uh, <laughs> just kidding, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of folks out there. So hey, Biden administration recent executive order to uh, get the Federal Trade Commission to uh, really step up on promoting uh, repair advocacy for folks. So I, I'm being broad here because I don't know the specific wording of the executive order I had in front of me a minute ago, but Biden administration executive order to push the FTC to promote, uh, you know, 
right to repair. There's also the New York State Senate and legislature will hopefully take up the right to repair legislation in their next legislative session. And our own Congressman Joe Morelli in Monroe County introduced the Fair Repair Act in Congress last, last month. You can also check out, of course, the folks on the ground who've been advocating this for a lot longer. Uh, you know, their work has gotten the politicians to take this up. So one place to go where Kevin O'Reilly spoke to us from, uspurge.org. That's U-S-P-I-R-G.org, U-S-P-I-R-G.org. Org. Hey folks, we got to wrap it up though. Thanks so much for tuning in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can always find our past episodes available as a podcast wherever you get your podcast by searching for Evidence of Design. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friend and co-host, Mary Lawrence. Thank you. Until next time, be well, be safe, take care, and bye-bye.